0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Uh, John chapter 3, we've been working our, our way through John chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to finish up uh, the third chapter of John this morning. We find ourselves in verse 31, so 31 through 36. So if you would uh, stand with me and... Let's honor the reading of scripture together. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and ask you to, to guide us this morning as we approach your, your word. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to truth. I pray that you would open our, our hearts and our minds that, you might be, uh, that we might be receptive to what you have for us. Lord, we, we pray that in the end of, of all of this this morning that we would see Jesus Christ um, exalted, and that he would receive uh, the glory. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> so if you, if you remember, we've been looking at uh, John the Baptist's ministry. We've, we've looked at John the Baptist's ministry before, right, in, in, chapter, in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, when we were talking about John the Baptist. We said that we would come back to the ministry of John the Baptist, and now in, in John chapter 3, we, we certainly have. We're actually in the middle of John's response to those who have questioned John regarding the ministry of Jesus. They, they asked John about his disciples who seemed to be leaving him in droves and going to Jesus. Now, John has already spoken of Jesus, right? In chapter 1 is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he's already, in chapter 1, directed his own disciples to Jesus. But go back for a moment to John chapter 1 and verse 19. This is where we're introduced to John the Baptist. Just look for a moment about how the the Apostle John introduces us to him. He says, "And, and this is the testimony of John. This is the the witness of John. If you remember, way back then in John chapter 1, we made a big deal about that word, witness or testimony. It's where we get our English word martyr from. And I think it's really profound here that this is how uh, John, the, the apostle, introduces the Baptist to us. This is his witness, this is his testimony. In the past few weeks, there's been a lot uh, made about uh, witnesses or or testimony. If you've kept tabs on the Derek Chauvin trial, like much of America and the world, for that matter, uh, did, then you know that there were a number of of eyewitnesses accounts to to what happened there. But not only were there witnesses, there was all of this video that that captured the drama from start to finish, if you were to take and put all of these things together together. There was one comment, well, there was lots of comments, but one in particular that I recall by somebody in a relatively high position that should have known better, but they questioned why we even needed a trial when there was a video of what happened to George Floyd. But the eyewitness testimony itself seemed overwhelming, and perhaps it was. I I don't know what it was that caused the the jury to deliver a a verdict so quickly. Perhaps it was the eyewitness testimony, but there was a particularly interesting moment in the trial. It was in the the defense attorney, Eric Nelson's closing statement, where he talked about the difference between perspective and perception. It, It was absolutely fascinating to me. He said this, and I'll just quote him. He said, your perception is how you interpret what you see. And what, and, and what it is that you experience. He says, these are the things that make us who we are. He said, three people in this trial went to the same high school. Me, Darnella Frazier, Frazier and Chief Arenado. We all went to the same high school, obviously at different times. We had the same perspective. Sat in the same classrooms. Saw the same chalkboards or whiteboards. The same perspective. But our perception of the experiences there is going to be much different. Nelson then went on to look at the testimony that was offered by the different witnesses to the events leading up to the arrest of George Floyd. And then he, he turned and, and looked about how Chauvin perceived the events as he arrived on the scene leading up to pinning him to the ground. Nelson went on and said this, We don't look at this incident from the perspective of the people who are upset by it. We look at it from the perspective of a reasonable police officer. Now, from my perspective, pun intended there, and from what I saw of the trial, this was probably the most powerful moment for the defense. Now... The jury didn't believe that his argument there amounted to reasonable doubt as to Chauvin's guilt, obviously, and I'm not suggesting that it should have been. What I'm saying is that there is the perspective of the onlookers. There is the perspective of the police. There is the perspective of those who watch the videos. And there were those who were, who were not there during all of this that had a perspective. Not, and this applies not only to this situation, but any... We carry different perceptions of events at hand. Nelson's point was a good one. Just because all these people were there looking at the same thing, that seemed obvious to some, things aren't so simple. But what if there was a witness that had a divine perspective? A perspective that no one else had or could have had. Would we trust his perception? I, I, I use this example here because it was such a, a big deal and because uh, of Eric Nelson's closing, I, I thought it was very interesting, but I couldn't help here but but think of, of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist here points us to, to Jesus Christ. And this is the testimony of John. And, and then the religious leaders question him and he admits, right, I'm not the Christ. And then says that there's one coming after him whose strap on his sandal that he is unworthy to untie. And then as we move through chapter 1, he identifies Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, what I want to point to here is, is that word testimony, right? In John 1.19, the, the Greek word there is where we get the English word martyr. A, a martyr is a, a witness who gives testimony, who's, who's willing to die for what he is. What you've seen and heard. Let me give you just one example. Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple, a disciple of the apostle John. He was 86 years old and was asked to deny Jesus or die. He said that he had lived that long, Jesus Christ hasn't let him down, so there was no reason that he would ever deny his King. He was a witness to the truth claims of Jesus, to who Jesus was, the Lamb of God that died for sinners. Obviously, those there at that moment thought that Polycarp's perspective was one perspective amongst many. They thought that his perception was wrong, worthy of death, so they killed him. I'm sure that when John the Baptist gave testimony to Jesus in John chapter 1, there were some, right, the religious elite And then even the disciples that were with him, as he pointed people to Jesus, and they believed that his perspective was just that, his perspective, his testimony. Perhaps they questioned it. They questioned his perception of all that was happening. We know this from chapter 3. Then Jesus was baptizing, and there were still disciples that were questioning John about his testimony concerning Jesus. The disciple that that brings this up, brings this issue up, says as much in chapter 3, verse 26. He says, the one you bore witness about. There's that word again. Hey, the guy over there, the one you were talking about, right? The one you were, before you were directing your disciples to. Everybody's going to him. Aren't you concerned? John bore witness, but still they questioned Why are people following Jesus? You're losing your following. Aren't you worried about this? And now John bears witness to Jesus again. And this is really what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. We saw John's humility in all of this. He pointed beyond himself to to Jesus. And then we looked at the the bride-bridegroom imagery that was in this text An illustration that was so rich that we spent our entire time last week just on that. Now, it it seems as though when John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus, he he turns here, right? In in verse 31, he kind of turns, he pivots, and he doesn't speak about uh, the perspective of himself from John the Baptist's perspective about Jesus. It's the perspective of Jesus. The divine witness of Jesus. Just look with me, starting at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So John the Baptist here is establishing something very important in his testimony concerning Jesus. He is saying, in essence, you can dismiss my witness, right? You can say that this my witness is from a human earthly perspective. You can chalk it up to my opinion, my take, but when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is different. He's from above and therefore above all. In, in fact, since he is from above, he doesn't speak in an earthly way like the rest of us. Therefore, and, and see where John the Baptist is, is going here with this, his witness is different than any other witness. Because we testify and witness to what we believe, we might be willing to die for those beliefs, but we are earthly people bearing witness to heavenly things. But Jesus, who is above all, is bearing witness to what he knows because he is above all things. He's from above. I hope what I'm saying here is, is making sense. Jesus is the divine word of God, he is God. And his testimony is not like any other testimony, it's undeniable. Or at least it should be. I think when John said before that one was coming after him, that he was not worthy to untie the strap on his sandal, this is what he was saying. But there's one here who is God himself. And while you might be able to pass off my testimony as an earthly perspective, a perception that may not get it right, you might say that I have a different perspective of, than yours. It might be equal to yours. It might just be different. You might be able to chalk all this up to however you want to view it. All earthly perspectives are capable of error, but Jesus' testimony is, is that from God himself, and it should be undeniable. That's what he's saying. Notice verse 32. He, he bears witness to what he has seen, and heard. He here, right, is Jesus. John isn't speaking of his own witness. He's speaking of the witness of Jesus now and why people are following him. And at the same time, why people refuse to follow him. So Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Question, what has Jesus seen and heard? It's an interesting question when you think about it. What is he talking about here? So the Baptist has already established something very important, and that is Jesus is above all. He's from above. He isn't earthly. He doesn't come at things from an earthly perspective. So what he has seen and heard here isn't earthly things. It's things from above. Does that make sense? So what he has seen and heard then isn't what his parents said of him growing up. You're special. Let me tell you what the angel said. It's not it. It isn't what he learned about himself up to this point. Some would say, well, it took Jesus some 30 years to figure out who he was and what his mission was. It was this divine self-discovery. And then his testimony here would be a reference to that, what he discovered about himself. I disagree. That cannot be right. It gives the image that when it comes to the incarnation or Jesus taking on flesh, that somehow the divine was stuck in the humanity and the divine had to somehow claw his way out of that so that he could discover who he was at the appointed time. That is not an orthodox doctrine of Trinity or the incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation is that God of the universe took on human flesh, 100% God, 100% human, in perfect harmony. One pastor said it this way in talking about the Athanasian Creed. He said this, the, the relation of Christ's natures to his person is mysterious, but it is important. If we fail to recognize the unity of Christ's person, we might see him as divine with some human characteristics or as human with some divine characteristics or a confused combination of the two. Jesus is one Christ, with both a human nature and a divine nature, and these natures do not bleed together in Christ. God added to himself our humanity while continuing to be God. So what did Jesus see and hear that he bore witness to? That's the the question that's on the table. I would suggest that when John is speaking of here is what he has heard from above. This is the idea that, that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God's plan of redemption is unfolding. And he knows that plan because he was there when that plan was developed. No one knows how sin will be dealt with more than Christ does. No one knows God's plan of redemption more than Christ does. And when he bears witness to that, we ought to listen. By the way, we call this this knowledge that Jesus has here uh, the the covenant of redemption. It's an agreement between the members of the Trinity and eternity past. The, The agreement between the Father and the Son to save those who would place their faith in him. This is the agreement of how all of this would take place in time. This is what the Son knows. This is what the Son is bearing witness to. And he knows it because he was there. I think this is made clear in verse 36 if we skip down there a bit. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So the, the testimony or Witness of Jesus concerns what? It concerns how it concerns how one obtains eternal life and the consequences of disbelief or disobeying the gospel, which for which the consequences are the wrath of an all holy God. So, before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, let's go back to verse thirty-two. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, but yet no one receives his testimony. Now, if you would just go back up to verse 11 for a moment. We recognize that this is, this is really here is a repetition of what Jesus has already said, his own evaluation of his ministry when he was talking to Nicodemus. Let me read that. This is right after Nicodemus expresses his skepticism by asking, how can these things be? Jesus says in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Notice in that verse, you have two uses of that word that we see over and over here. You bear witness, our testimony. Both variations of that same Greek word, and we've talked about. Here is Nicodemus, right? He's one of the most knowledgeable ones in the scriptures of his day. The the one that countless people would have gone to for spiritual advice. One of the spiritual elite. Yet Jesus is saying, the truth is right here before you in what God is is doing in the midst of, of Jesus' ministry and his followers. Yet he will not receive the testimony. Now later, the Baptist is speaking of Jesus and suggesting that that trend is continuing. There, there are people that follow Jesus for a time. They might leave John the Baptist for Jesus, but the inference here is that, both, is that in both Jesus' words to Nicodemus and his words to, from John the Baptist here are that they've seen this happen. That people have started following Jesus, but the determination is is that they really haven't received His testimony at all. They haven't obeyed the gospel, and therefore, the wrath of God remains on them. Look at verse thirty-three. So now, whoever does receive this— whoever does receive this testimony—is sealed to this, that God is true. The testimony of Jesus concerns eternal life, how to obtain it. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And here, when no one accepts the testimony of Jesus, or when one accepts the testimony of Jesus, something happens. They, as it were, set their seal to to something. What does that mean? Well, the idea of a a seal is like a stamp or a signet ring. It attests to something. For, For instance, if one receives a letter with a king's seal on it, you know that it is first a letter from the king. It has the king's seal. You know who it's from. Secondly, you know that only the one who it's addressed to may open it. In this case, the idea here is that one that believes the testimony of Jesus is like a a seal attesting to a fact. And the fact here is made clear in the text. And that is that God is true. Verse 34. Again, in in verse 34, notice the the language of of witness here. It, It continues. For he whom God had sent... Right? That is Jesus. This is the one who, who utters the, the words of God because he is from above. He's God himself, and therefore, he should be believed. But then we get a, a statement here that is very interesting, and that is, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, remember, the, the context is... Christ's witness and the credibility of Christ's witness. The credibility of Christ's witness is because he's from above. He doesn't come at things from an earthly perspective, but a heavenly one. This statement does not depart from that context. Some might be tempted to read that verse, isolate it from the rest, and just run with it. But that's not what should happen. You might say, God gives us the spirit without measure. That might be true, but that is not what the text is saying here. If you if you look at John uh one, thirty-two and thirty-three, if you just flip back there, it says we have the testimony of John, and we're learning what John saw in, in these short verses. We hear John say twice that the spirit descended from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And then again, at the end of verse 33, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. The reason this is mentioned twice here is because John is drawing our attention to the fact that this is fulfilled prophecy. In Isaiah 11.2, we read this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In 42.1 of Isaiah, it says, behold, my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of prisons. So what he is saying here in John 3.34 about the spirit being given without measure is a truth that he had already expressed in John chapter 1. He's, he's reiterating this fact. It goes to Jesus' credibility as a witness, right? John saw this. I saw this. It happened. The prophecy was fulfilled. We, we saw it. The Spirit came down. It, it rested. It, it remained on him. His perspective is a heavenly perspective. He must be believed. The difference... Between John 1 and, and 3, though, John was the first John's testimony there. Now we're, it was John's testimony in chapter 1. Now we are speaking of, of the one that believes the testimony of Jesus. And that person knows this, and they themselves testify to it. As the one, as a seal, testifies to what it has been sealed by. Now, it is true that God has given His Spirit to people before this. I'm not saying that that hasn't happened. right? God's Spirit was on the prophets, for instance. It was on the prophets according to the, the measure of each prophet's task or assignment. The Spirit on them was related to how God was using them in a specific instance. This isn't so with Jesus. The Spirit descended on Him, and not only that, it remained on Him. Why? Right? Because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. I want you to notice something here, and it's related to the, the word love there, or agape, in verse 35. In fact, in these verses, notice that the love of God permeates it. God's love for his, his own people, uh, by extension, but we really ought to notice here is the love between the members of the Trinity, it's the Father that, that sends the Son. The Son bears witness to all he has seen and heard. This is Trinitarian in the, in the response that it was the, in the members of the Trinity that were involved in, in all of this plan of redemption that was unfolding. And by Jesus taking on flesh, we know that the plan of redemption is unfolding just the way that it was designed to unfold from eternity past. The whole of God's redemptive plan finds its ultimate source and fulfillment in the loving relationships within the Trinity itself. Now, the Son is obedient to the Father. Why? Because the Son loves the Father. The whole of of God's plan of redemption was born in, in love. Love for us, yes. But what is often overlooked is the loving relationship between the members of the Trinity in the plan of redemption. It was love here that caused God to put his spirit upon Jesus without measure. This was different than anything that had ever happened or will happen. It's absolutely stunning when we think about it, that God in his love for the son has given the spirit without limit and placed everything into his hand. The unfolding of redemptive history finds its source in in love. Let me just tell you one reason why this is, is important and it matters. It's one among uh, many. And I've already mentioned this uh, a time or two in, in a number of ways, but I'll, I'll continue to bring it up because it's such a prevalent false teaching today. Right? If your child goes to, to college in a secular or Christian school, I would guess this will come up. And that is that Jesus dying on the cross. The way that that Orthodox Christianity has always understood it, that God determined it, that God sent his son to die for the the sins of those who would believe in him, is some form of cosmic child abuse. For the the secular person to bring this argument up, it causes the the young Christian, or the goal is to to cause the young Christian to to question the the foundation of of their faith, to question uh, the gospel itself in hopes that they will deny it. Saying that the Christian actually paints a, a picture of God that is not like a God, if there is one. But there are those even in in Christian circles that teach this. The fact is that, that many professors in, in different schools are, are becoming increasingly progressive in, in reinterpreting the cross. Their understanding of the cross is is progressive. It's progressing and getting better, suggesting that Jesus taking our place and bearing the wrath of God for us, that this is not in keeping with God's love. We must, they say, understand the cross another way. My friend, understanding the cross another way is a denial of the gospel. I'm not saying that the atonement is not vast. It is. There are countless dimensions to it. When it comes to the cross, but to deny that Jesus took our place bearing the wrath that we deserved is a denial of the gospel. Now, I love the last verse here. It's really a a reiteration of what has already been said. There's really nothing new uh, in that last verse except that John the Baptist really places those words in the context of Jesus' divine witness about himself, but Jesus is from above, where's witness to heavenly things? Because He was there, He ought to believe. now there is a consequence for disbelief, isn't there? Notice, though, that it isn't if you choose to not believe, then God's wrath comes on you. That's how some understand it, right? You live through life and you're this equal plane and then you choose to not accept the gospel, and then all of a sudden God's wrath is is on you. The text makes clear. The wrath of God is already on you. It remains there if you do not believe. In other words, what is just? True biblical justice is God rendering to each one what they deserve. We will be judged according to what we have done. And God is a righteous judge and always does what is right. The problem is that most people today justify in one way or another living in a way that is contrary to what God has said. They violate his rules. They commit treasonous actions against their creator but have convinced themselves that we're not that bad. The Bible says clearly in Romans 1 that God has made these things plain. What is plain? There is a God, a creator, an arbiter of what is right and wrong. The law of God is written on our heart. We know, at least in some level, that there are things that are wrong. But these things are spelled out clearly in the scriptures. And the fact that we continually violate God's commands is abundantly clear. And the consequences are clearly spelled out as well. The wrath of God. The world today... What it seems like in an increasing way is is saying that the Christian faith, the the Christian gospel, is unloving. It doesn't care about people. If Christians were loving, they would accept a, a woman's right to choose to abort their child because it is unloving to suggest that what is happening there is actually murder. It's unloving to condemn homosexual behavior or sexual perversion. It is unloving to say that marriage is between a man and a woman. It is unloving to call sin as sin as the Bible does. It's unloving to suggest that people are guilty of what the Bible calls sin and that because of sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God and will spend eternity in a devil's hell. Now, of course, those things are not pleasant subjects. And Christians don't take pleasure in saying any one of those things. And those things are not easy to believe, let alone say in any way in today's world. But I would suggest that when Christians do say this, it is actually loving, or should be. It's loving because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And in fact, Jesus is the only remedy for our sin. There's no remedy for sin outside of Christ. And to point people to Christ, they need to understand that he is the remedy of their sin. The wrath of God is on us because of our sin. And this remedy for sin was born in the heart of God, out of love. The love that exists within the Trinity itself. The love that God has for those who are His. Love is in, around, and through God's plan of redemption. In a moment here, we're going to take time and, and celebrate this love that, that God had for us, right? The, the fact that this plan of, of, of redemption happened in history. But there was a, a moment in which the God of the universe came and, and died for us. But this plan was was born of his love to give himself as a sacrifice for our sin. It's also true that Jesus was being obedient to the Father. It's true to say here that Jesus gave himself for our sins. It's true to say that God sent his one and only son to die, to take our place so that we might have eternal life. And as we come and we celebrate the Lord's table, I I want you to take and, and, and just contemplate the love of God for you in all of this. If you're, not a, if you're not a believer, I would ask that you don't participate in taking the elements. The Lord's table, table is for believers, those who have placed their faith and, and trust in what Christ has done for them. But I would also ask, though, that if you're not a believer, that you would take time and, and contemplate God's love the love that he has for sinners, that he would make a way to save you from your sin when you did not deserve it. And I pray that as you think about this, that you would be brought to a place where you would see clearly the the beauty of what Jesus has done for you, that he took your place and that you would take and and trust him alone for your salvation. For the believer, I I, I would ask that you take time and, and contemplate first how undeserving you are. How the, the cross was such a, a tremendous display of, of love for you because God would have been completely just and right to let you pay for what you deserve. Second, take time to, to think about the love of the love that was displayed to you on the cross that Jesus dealt with your sin and how that changes the way that you relate to the people around you? How should that change the way that we interact with those around us? Will you be one that bears witness to the love of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ to others? I'll say this. The good deeds are important, but don't stop there. Good deeds earn goodwill, which leads to good news. Some would like to have us believe that good deeds are enough without ever intending that they lead to the proclamation of the good news. I would suggest that is wrong. There are times in which we do good things that don't lead to gospel proclamation, of course. And this is the kind of people that we should be. But I'm saying that there are those that minimize the gospel in favor of good deeds. As if the primary need of a homeless person was a bowl of soup or a meth-addicted mother drug treatment. Now, I'm, I'm not saying... Or I am saying that we as Christians must meet those needs. Right? We give the soup. We help the mom with her addiction. We meet the need. And in that, we develop relationship. We earn goodwill that allows us to share the gospel. We enter into relationships with people. And those relationships that we develop with people are based on love. The love that we have for them. God's love for people. God's love for us is illustrated by our willingness to love people enough to share the love of Jesus with them. There's a third thing I want you to think about as we come to the Lord's table. And this is going to sound maybe a little bit strange, but I I want you to think about ways in which you serve in the church. I want you to think about how you would like to serve in the church how you do serve, in light of what Jesus has done for us, right, and how Jesus has served us by dying for our sins, by coming in and being the, this sacrifice, this, this witness, and bearing witness to the truth. How will you give your life in service to him? Perhaps this isn't something you've thought much about, and you have an idea. I'd like you to share it with me. Maybe you want to let me know, send me a a text, write it on the card and drop it in the box, however you want to do that. But don't hesitate to reach out. I would love to, to hear from you about that. In just a, a moment here, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're to sing a, a song together. We're going to sing um, Before the Throne of God. I love that song. And during that song, I want to invite you to come and, and take communion. Come to, to the Lord's table Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.